This episode of the Out of Bounds Podcast is sponsored by Fisher Skis, and you can visit them at www.fishersports.com. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, my name is Adam Jabber. This is the Out of Bounds Podcast, and we have probably one of the most important episodes that we've had in a while. Ben Leone is on the show. We're talking mountain town housing. Ben is a uh, former lawyer, and uh, I mean, he is a lawyer, and the dude has so much information inside of his head about what the problem is with mountain housing, why it is so expensive, why it's so hard to find and why that's not getting fixed right away. Uh, and then some of the things that need to happen in order for it to get fixed. It's uh, it's crazy to hear someone actually talk through the issues that are going on right now in a very open manner and have solutions for it and actually have facts to back up what they think is the problem so i hope you enjoy this episode i got a lot out of it i've gotten a ton out of talking to ben we've got a bunch of great resources in the show notes for you to check out if that is something you are interested in if you're interested in following up for sure hit up ben uh if you have questions for me about it uh, i'm happy to answer them and i'm happy to connect with ben as well so before we get into the episode we have partners uh today the episode is sponsored by deuter it is deuter not deuter uh, these guys make the best bags in the entire world, and they just released their new hip pack. I've been running this thing for the last few weeks, and I got to tell you, the old one was good, but this one is great. It has all the space you need, can run a hydration bladder, comes in a couple different sizes, looks really clean, and uh, and I'm really proud of what the team has kind of put out with this one. I'm I'm super impressed. So you can go to deuter.com, D-E-U-T-E-R.com to get yourself a new bag, a new hip pack, whatever. Obviously, if you're still ski touring, they make the best bags in the entire world for that as well. That's actually their primary category. And uh, and I'm psyched to keep working with these guys. So thank you to our friends at Deuter, and I hope you check out some of their bags. Next, we have Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada is one of our annual partners that I could not be more excited to have on board they have a bunch of new product out right now including the new Summerfest line you can go get that at any liquor store near you that sells sierra nevada if they don't have it be sure to ask for it you can also go to sierranevada.com and check out all the offerings and find out where you can get it they also have some awesome recipes x and i did a little cooking show on youtube over the past couple months uh, to just kind of showcase some of the recipes on their website. And for those of you that are not drinking, like myself right now, hit up the Hop Splash. It is amazing. I'm a huge fan of something that kind of tastes like a beer, but is a seltzer. It's light. It's easy to drink. And on the hot summer days, I couldn't ask for anything better. So check out SierraNevada.com. Also, Go subscribe to the YouTube. We've got a ton of good YouTube content coming out and, and out right now, uh, including the Rasputitsa uh, recap, which just happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, we've got some videos on how to check your tire pressure, what you should be running. We've got some new videos coming out on chain length, cutting your chain, and all that good stuff. So hit up the YouTube, just search out of collective, and you will find us. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode with my friend and yours, Ben Leone. Ben, why don't you tell people who you are, a little bit about yourself, and then we can kind of roll from there. 
Yeah, what's up, everyone? Um, my name is Ben Leone, and I am a skier and a lawyer. Um, live here, and <laughs> yeah, that's kind of those are my two jams, I guess. I don't know. My Instagram yeah, handle yeah. is that skiing lawyer guy because some people have actually called me that before. <laughs> uh, like no joke. Um, yeah, I live in Maine, but um, yeah, I have a long history of living around the country and kind of various mountain towns at various times. And uh, now I am an environmental lawyer. Um, I work for the U.S. Department of the Interior, uh, basically focused on uh, federal lands um, regulation and environmental laws and stuff like that. Um, and um, but yeah, still a skier, mountain biker. I always got tons of projects. I'm a dad. Yeah, that's that's the that's the short story. <laughs> Mostly a dad these days. I love that. That's probably most of my time. Yeah, just being dad. Yeah. What? So, talk to me a little bit about what you you kind of emailed me or DM me and we're like, okay, like I got something really cool to talk about. I think. What What is that? Like, kind of frame it for people a little bit so they kind of know what they're getting into here. Yeah. Yeah. So. I've had this conversation with a bunch of people, a lot of friends who are like skiers, bikers and things like that. And it has to do with mountain town housing and the, the housing crisis that mountain towns are facing. And it's something that I've been studying for a really long time. And I had kind of a particular angle on it, I think, um, as somebody who used to do a lot of like municipal land use regulation and now I'm doing more federal land use regulation but I have like a lot of background in it um and, and housing from more like of a legal standpoint and um and so they basically a bunch of friends like were like dude you should talk to some podcasts about this because like people aren't talking about it and what that is is like I think everybody can agree that there's a housing crisis in mountain towns across this country. And there's a lot of articles and press about the crisis and how it's affecting people. But where I differ and where I think I have a different voice from a lot of these articles and, and, you know, videos is that most of these articles, like people in a lot of these mountain towns point the finger at like the rising housing costs towards things like Airbnb and, um, you know, outsiders moving in or remote work is a more recent phenomenon uh, where everyone's going remote. And so I think they have a tendency to kind of point at like outside forces that they don't have control over as like, you know, this is what's causing the housing crisis. You know, and anecdotally, everybody kind of agrees with that. Like everyone's like, oh yeah, there's a lot more Airbnbs. The, this is all true, but I think that these conversations and that kind of finger pointing really ignores the true, uh, the true problem and that the root of the housing um, crisis in these mountain towns, which is really over-regulation um, of the type of housing that we can put into these towns. So I think that, you know, really it's the town's own zoning codes. These are the you know, we're going to get into the weeds with zoning a little bit, which is definitely not like sexy, but it is the root of the co the problem. Uh, the land use regulations and the zoning laws in a lot of mountain towns 
are so restrictive that basically only like one type of housing is allowed in most of these mountain towns, or at least in like 90% of the mountain town. And that's a single family house. And there is an incredible amount of data out there um, compiled by academics and other people that look at this issue, economists and single family housing is the most expensive kind of housing. And it artificially, you know, because there's no such thing as like the free market when it comes to housing, because we have things like zoning, like we've had these for, for decades, you know? So I think, you know, most of the zoning in mountain towns, we're going to talk a little bit about Crested Butte, just because I think it's an easy example, but it only allows you to build a single family house. And so what that really means in these communities is that, um, is that we have large open parcels with a big mansion on it and it's sprawled all over town. Right. And that's because that's all you can build in these towns. So I think in a lot of ways, I think mountain towns and their citizens need to take a step back step back and instead of pointing the fingers at things like Airbnbs and outsiders moving in, I think they need to kind of look in the mirror and recognize that some of these regulations, which are designed by the people in town to, you know, preserve quote character of the town or the rural nature of a town um, really are driving these towns towards a community that is essentially a theme park a mountain theme park for like millionaires and billionaires, because they're the only people who are going to be able to live there. Um, Right. And so I think, I don't think that's what mountain towns actually want. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I hope the listeners today kind of come away with a better understanding of why there's a housing crisis in mountain towns and that it's really land use regulation and zoning. It's not these things like Airbnb and remote work, those contribute to it. Um, but what is the root cause? Why is there such a low housing co- housing stock in these towns in the first place that's being gobbled up by, by yeah. Airbnb? Um, and, um, you know, so I think, I hope that the listeners can kind of come away with a couple concrete ideas of things that they can do if they live in a mountain town to, to try to push for changes within their towns. Because I think we're at a tipping point. And I also just want to like quickly digress and just say like, we're talking about housing crisis in mountain towns. And, but it's really important to remember that there is a housing crisis across this country. Housing costs and Mm -hmm. housing prices have risen dramatically in the last um, three, four years. And even before that, they've been going through the roof basically since the, the housing crash, like 2008, once they started to rebound. So, um, you know, one thing I do want to mention is, is that in a lot of cities and towns across this country, when they face a housing crisis, um, which they are, the people that are most affected by the housing crisis are renters and because they're getting pushed right. out and, um, and most and, and that disproportionately affects minorities and people of color because of their low rate of home ownership compared to, um, to, you know, the, the white Caucasians here. Um, yeah. and so that's a whole nother discussion to be had by somebody else, I think. Um, 
but it's really important to give perspective that that the issue, you know, there's this housing crisis across the country, and we've seen spikes in housing costs in a lot of cities that mirror the spike that's been happening in mountain towns. Um, but the people that are getting screwed out of housing in those places are disproportionately minorities and people that don't have anywhere else to go. Whereas, you know, a lot of the complaints in mountain towns are like, oh, I can't get enough. There's not enough housing for seasonal workers to work at my job, you know? And to me, right. that's like, or it's a seasonal worker being like, I can't afford to live here. And it's like one thing to complain about like a college grad who wants to live the dream, not able to find housing versus like people in these cities who, you know, literally have no other choice and find themselves on the street. Um, so we, yeah. you know, that's, that's what I want to talk about today. We can get into a lot of this zoning. <laughs> it's, it's heavy. It's deep. Um, but yeah, it's kind of thick, right? I don't know. Like, I, I mean, that's just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, it's kind of thick. Like, there's a lot of it that's like it's super detailed, and I think people kind of take the easy way out, where it's like, let's just blame Airbnbs, right? Let's point the finger at people who are now working from home that have moved from the cities, and I think, like you said, all that contributes to it. But I think there's more at play here um, that people are kind of missing and missing the point. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to start with zoning and kind of explaining to people at a super baseline what what zoning even means, right? Because I think that that's probably step one. Because yeah. most people have never shown up to like a town hall meeting, right? Like, right. I don't think people a understand what it actually means when it comes to building or buying a property, using the land, whatever. And I also don't necessarily think people understand how that stuff gets voted on in places like Crested Butte or any other mountain town, right? Like how that conversation starts and when that gets decided. And then we can kind of dive into why it gets decided yeah. that continually this has been the case where it's like single family, single family housing with a lot of land. And I'm sure there's, there's cop-out answers and there's real answers and everything in between. A hundred percent. You definitely nailed it on that one. We'll get into it. So zoning basically is um, what mostly municipalities, sometimes county governments, if the county's in control of land use regulation, do to um, create different areas of the town where different uses are allowed. So in cities, that's why you find things like, um, even in small towns, like industrial parks are in one little area. And then it's single family homes around it, or there's like a small downtown area. And then there's a lot of sprawl around it. America, about 90% of America is zoned for single family housing right now. And, and that's really, there's a lot of studies on this. Um, a lot of academic economists, legal scholars have studied this. It is the number one driver for housing costs in this country um, is single family zoning. So what these towns are doing is the idea behind zoning um, viewed from the best light is essentially towns have decided that they want to separate uses of land that they deem incompatible. So an easy one is like, we don't want to put a quarry where we're blasting with TNT next to a school or in the middle of a small residential neighborhood. Okay. So towns will make sure through their zoning that they separate those uses, you know, the quarries on one side of the town 
and the schools and the houses on the on the other side of town or it's you know the big box box stores can go over here the housing goes over here so there is all these towns have maps and these maps are detailed and intricate and they're all shaded with different colors and the different colors coincide with uh each zone which has its own like set of allowable uses and so when we're talking about single family home single family zoning which is like i said about 90 percent of this country and it's the majority of these mountain towns as well you can't do things like put a convenience store on that lot like if you buy four acres and you're in the 90 percent of the town that's zoned for single family housing the only thing you're allowed to put there is a single family house you can put one house there right and even if you've got a whole bunch of land and so you can't put a convenience store there you can't put a duplex there you can't put a fourplex there um you can't put uh what they'll call college cottage court communities which are like a number of small like individual houses um on the same lot that are like you know 1200 square feet um which is which is typically a less expensive type of housing um than like a normal single family home so so that's zoning and there's a lot of other aspects to it it doesn't just separate the town but when you get into the land use regulations within each zone so what is allowed within the zone that you know allows commercial uses there's still things like building height restrictions there's still things like minimum lot size like if you want one residential unit a lot of these towns have like five different types of single family zones and like some of those zones you can put a house on a small lot some of those zones require a huge piece of property before you can put a house there Um, and so those are all considered those regulations that apply within zones people still refer to that as zoning too Um, but yeah the large scale is dividing up the town into and and dictating what uses can happen where that's zoning got it so what why is so much of it especially in mountain towns right if we know if we know we're in a crisis where we need that housing the small businesses in the town depend on people living there that can afford to live there why why is so much of it single family zoned versus you know putting in a apartment complex or putting in like a two family like what help me understand a little bit why that's happening and how that gets put through year after year cuz we it's this is not a new situation it's a building situation right like where yeah. the last few years it this has happened more and more and more and i think red flags are starting to go up like all over the country in mountain towns because you're like oh shit i had eight employees last year i have three now because no one can afford to live here yeah you know like and it's not it's easy to say like oh pay the employees more but like what like even if you pay them forty dollars an hour they're not going to be able to pay what a lot of this stuff is priced at and it just it isn't available right. like that's the other thing too is like people are living and occupying in these places there's such a low inventory to be able to go out there and get this stuff right. like i went through it myself like in the dover shop i told you this like we were looking for a place for our guys to live and like there was no options and the only options were either super super expensive or you're paying everything up front 
right? So to go and ask somebody that works at a ski shop, that works at a pizza shop, that works on the mountain to go in front six months of rent is crazy. Like it's just not going to happen 90% of the time probably. So why does that keep getting pushed through if we know what's happening? Um, because the, so, so the more pessimistic answer to this, which there is data behind, is that people vote for their own pecuniary interests, meaning mm-hmm. people who the, the people who get to vote in these towns typically are already homeowners. Uh, a lot of them is disproportionate. Like you don't have seasonal workers coming in and, and, and going to town meetings to vote on a zoning ordinance. You get people who already own a house there. And so there are studies, some of them kind of show a lot of the pessimism, um, but they basically say that, that it's basically that the people who already have their piece of the pie will work hard to protect it. And that, mm. that these zoning laws, and you know, to be honest, one of these studies that I've read um, kind of points the finger squarely at boomers, to be perfectly honest. Um, and, uh, because a lot of the zoning ordinances that went into effect, um, you know, there was a, it it became mainstream around the time that baby boomers were buying housing and raising their kids. And they were the ones kind of behind a lot of the zoning ordinances in this country. Zoning goes back a lot longer than that, but it wasn't nearly as well accepted and, and adopted like everywhere as it is now. Um, but you know, and so the pessimists say um, basically that they are voting in these regulations um, with their own interests in mind because they have always known that single family housing is the most expensive kind of housing. And what we think about what has happened to housing prices since the 1980s, like people have made a bajillion amount of <laughs> bajillion dollars, like with money in real estate, like putting your money in real estate right now is, well, maybe not right now, but if you did it in the 1980s or 1990s and you still hold on to to it now, like, like you couldn't have put your money into like really any other area of the economy and made more money off of that. And that is really driving a lot of the wealth and quality that we see in this country, which we don't need to get into. Um, But that's sort of the pessimistic view. The more I think, I, I think that doesn't give us the full picture, though. Um, I think the, the bigger view, honestly, is comes down to like psychology and people don't like change. So, okay. you know, you think about Crested Butte. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's got this like great rural feel. You're driving up from Gunnison. There's all this open space. There's like branches and stuff. And it, it feels kind of like agrarian still and like small towny. Um, but, it, you know, and so people want to preserve that feel. That's what like attracted them there in the first place. And so they're like, oh, this is like, it just, it feels like a great little town. There's all these recreational amenities. And I've got views from my houses. Like you can see the mountains no matter where you are in town. And so I think people are, are drawn to that kind of landscape. And then what, what, is, what we're seeing over time is essentially the story of humans is like, hum, we don't like change. 
and we don't be, and so a lot of these zoning ordinances came into effect in the, in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands to preserve that feel, um, that mountain town feel kind of regardless of what was going on with, with housing and affordability regardless. And so, yeah, people, you know, some people just say it's like, you know, it's driven by nostalgia, which I think there's some truth to that. Um, people move into a town and then they don't want it to change after they move in. And that's just like, I felt that in various places that I've lived. Like, um, but the problem is change is inevitable. And, um, but, but what folks have found out is that zoning ordinances can do a lot to reduce the amount of change that happens. And so they have created land use regulation that preserves the status quo while the world changes around them. And that has created a lot of incredible pressures on these towns when it comes to housing. Right. So let me ask you this. If you go and we say we release a lot of these restrictions that are put on zoning right now, right? We open up more available housing. A lot of the argument that you hear from like people that live in these towns, like and have lived there and especially like the wealthy, the comfortable, the retired, like these types of people. One of the worries that you hear about is the town becoming overrun, like with people that live there all the time or seasonally, and it just basically shutting down their ability to do anything, right? Is there any merit to that? Or is there just like a happy medium where there's limitations on the amount of housing that you start to open up? I don't think that there's a lot of merit. I think that as, as, Building, if you open up areas to more building, as building expands, you you do have to plan for it within the town and make right. sure that the services continue to be provided to those new areas. So whether that's water or sewer, and that can, you know, that's a hard thing for towns to do. Um, and so I think that's another reason why it's not done a lot is, you know, people are like, oh, man, like, like, if we want an apartment building down here, we're going to have to run sewer, we're going to have to run water, we're going to have to figure out maybe a new intersection Mm. down here. But that's a story of towns developing across this country. That's how they've always developed. Towns can do it. People just kind of throw out these things as like, well, these must be roadblocks. Or they say like, you know, they say like, well, well, what about the services? And aren't we going to have more parking? And aren't we going to have more congestion as if these are like rhetorical questions and they're not, and there's answers to them. And, um, and that with good town planning, you work around them and it can, it can work better than what's there today. Right. So in your mind, what, what is the solution to this part of the problem, right? There's a few issues that we're kind of going to talk about when it comes to housing and mountain towns and all this stuff, but for this particular issue, what what needs to change? I think we talked about it when we chatted on Monday. Like, one of the issues is that only people that own homes, specifically the older, wealthier people that have lived in these towns forever, that don't want anything to change, those are the ones showing up to these town hall meetings, to the like going and actually communicating with town reps. Like, this kind of stuff seems to be 
their bread and butter, right? And I told you, like, I can tell you, like, I was on an environmental committee in town, and I remember my grandfather showing up to the town hall meeting and just, like, completely losing his shit, like, uh, because he didn't like the way something was, like, zoned. It wasn't, like, he couldn't build what he wanted to build because there was a river going through it. And he's losing, before he even realized that I was on this board. So, like, I, I got to see what he does. And there's 600 more of them that I saw throughout my time there. That just older white guys that get to just go there and say whatever they want, right? And just, like, make their opinion heard and not feel like they have to hide behind it. Or, like, they are they know that, like, okay, you're here as a public rep. You're going to hear my opinion. And they'll just try to make whoever that rep's life is harder so that they get what they want. So, that being said... What is the solution to that part of it? Because there's not like, I don't know what to do, right? We've yeah. talked about it twice now and I still don't like, I don't have an answer to say like, oh yeah, show up to town meetings. But like if you're a seasonal worker, what what do you do? What What is that solution? Yeah, um, I think seasonal workers can do that. I think that, um, but I think that these towns, you know, the people in these towns, I think that number one thing they need to do is get educated. Like, you can't solve this problem we're talking about by showing up to a town council and advocating for an extra, you know, 5% tax that's only applied to second home ownership or something like that, like, which is an actual debate that happened in the town of Crescent View. Because those types of policies, you know, there, there is, there has been a push in some of these towns as we hit a crisis point that is causing people that aren't just old, white, wealthy people who typically show up at these meetings, which by the way, there's a lot of research on. Um, and the people that show up to these zoning meetings across this country are disproportionately old, wealthy retirees who already own homes. But when you have a crisis like this, it provides an opportunity, it gets people worked up to actually try to go out and participate in their governments. But I think the number one thing they need to do is get educated before they go, because you're not going to solve the problem, like I said, by arguing for like a unoccupancy tax or just focusing on Airbnbs, because those aren't going to solve the underlying problem. So number one is you need to get educated about what the actual problem is. And I hope that this discussion is like the first step in doing that. Um, and then I think you know, you st you need to go to these town meetings and you need to be heard because it, you're right. Like if if the town council is just used to listening to the normal voices who show up at these town meetings, nothing's going to change. Right. I do think that eventually things might change. There was a really fascinating article in the New York Times a little while ago called The Twilight of the NIMBY. And it is... Um, NIMBYs, for those not familiar, is not in my backyard. And the whole article was about housing and how this one lady has spent the last 30 years opposing this project um, near San Francisco uh, to, to build like five condo units near her house, you know, and it's all about her. But one thing the article gets into, honestly, is that I'll go back to boomers. Boomers are disproportionately NIMBYs um, and that there's some that there's a lot of evidence that there is, you know, boomer generations. And I'm not like, I'm not saying that there's not 
you know, good reasons for them to advocate against housing the way that they are. Um, or I should say it's at least understandable because they came from a different time where like developers right. were all really bad. And like they came think about like, you know, they were growing up when all these environmental laws were being passed and developers were bad and there were all these polluters and like we had grassroots organizing and we, we went after the man and it worked. And so that has shaped their worldview. And there's, uh, there's again, there's studies on this. Um, but that folks in our generation, millennials, youngers, don't have that experience. Our experience has been housing is completely fucking unaffordable in this country. That's been our experience. Mm. And so I think that as generation, as there's a generational change in terms of the, the people who are working in these towns and kind of driving the bus, um, so to speak, I do think we're going to start to see some changes. I just... I'm not optimistic it's going to be happening super quickly, except for places that, that really get motivated. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a hard battle. And that's why this hasn't happened in most of these towns. It's really difficult. So why, let's talk a little bit about some of the bigger businesses that are in these towns that require a larger workforce, yeah. right? Like the veils of the world. How are they not able to influence some of these town governments to actually open up housing to make more available for their workers? Like there's yeah. there's just not enough across the board, it seems like. And you would think like Vale's like the big bad wolf, right, of the ski industry. Yeah. Well, even they can't get what they want done, right? Like it's it's crazy. It's tough. Vale has a very challenging relationship with the town from what i understand i'm not an expert on veil but you know veil has been trying recently and i try not to be because i just try not to pay attention to veil resorts or the town of veil <laughs> it's just not my thing um i just try to ignore them but like they they did try to put in a huge housing complex to house their workers yeah. in a part of Vail. Yeah, it got shut down. It got shut down. There's a lot of local opposition to it. Um, it's the same people. It's like these super wealthy people who live in mansions right nearby who are like, well, you're going to like destroy the um, the herd of uh, bighorn sheep that currently live in this one area. And it's like, to, you know, to be honest, bighorn sheep are not endangered. And... Um, you know, I'm an environmental lawyer. This is what I do every every day. Like, I work with the Endangered Species Act all the time. Like, but like to me, like I was waiting for you to be like, "Fuck the bighorn sheep." Like, like. To, to me, like you know, the people that are that are the the neighbors to this project who are like or this proposed project who are complaining about it, like their houses sit on former bighorn sheep habitat. So it's like it's like. Well, the, the only reason why yeah. they're shoved onto this little law is because you already freaking built on the rest of their property. And, and now you guys are complaining that, yeah. that we're worried about the bighorn sheep. It's not that I like am not sympathetic with the bighorn sheep. I'm not sympathetic with the argument that they're making. Um, but yeah these, yeah, these people are wealthy. <laughs> They've got a lot of time on their hands and they show up to every meeting and they make life a living hell for the town um, decision makers that are trying to look at some of these things but i think right you know at least at least there's parts of vale that are zoned that allow for more dense housing like 
you can actually yeah. do it in these places. The problem that we see in a lot of these other mountain towns, Vale, I, I would say, is kind of a unique situation because they're in such a small, tiny valley. Like the buildable footprint yeah. of that town is so constrained. I think they've got different right. challenges than places like um, even Crested Butte, which again is surrounded by federal lands on um, three sides. But um, but there's at least a lot more land. At least right now, there's a lot more developable land. Um, but what so in places like Crested Butte, the issue isn't bighorn sheep. Um, the issue is really zoning, and that you can't as it if you're if you're the the ski resort, you can't put in affordable housing for your employees because there's no place to put it right. in the town. Um, we can right. get into the Mount Crested Butte and their zoning ordinance in a second because they just passed a new one this year. Uh, Crested Butte, the town of Crested Butte, which is separate from Mount Crested Butte, um, just just did a whole planning process. We'll get into some examples there, but the long story short is you don't find even these huge corporations being able to find housing. They want to. They have the funds to do yeah. it, but they can't find a goddamn place to put it because the yeah. zoning regulations in the town don't permit it. And that's the problem. Right. So I do want to step back one, one step and just say, when we're talking about housing affordability, I think there's two different concepts that are both related, but there's like affordability for like seasonal workers and people like that. And that's typically done through rents. Like you rent your housing, right? You know, but then there's this other related concept of housing affordability for the people that actually like want to put down roots and raise a family. And yeah, some of these towns are talking about addressing the former issue, which is trying to permit in a couple areas of town, like these bigger complexes that have a lot of affordable rentals, which will solve some of the big problems that some of the towns have with their seasonal workforce. Um, and I don't think it's mm -hmm. a bad thing, but, but those kinds of policies aren't going to do diddly squat to lower or at least help control the prices of housing for people that actually want to buy a house there and live there long-term. Right. Yeah, to me, and I, I'm sure most people my age or that have kind of grown up around the industry, like you look at it now and you're like, the idea of living in a mountain town sounds really nice and sounds very dreamy, but like it's so not reality. Like I've put that so out of my head in terms of like an available option for me because the cost is so insane for what you get. And even if you could afford it, finding something that you want to buy is like next to impossible in these areas. Like, so I think, yeah, maybe the seasonal stuff gets better, but I, I, I don't know. I don't see buying a home in a mountain town getting any easier anytime soon. It's not going to, and it's certainly not going to. I think, I think some of these towns, you know, they've already shot themselves in the foot and, and right now yeah. they're going to have a really hard time digging out of it. But what I would say is that if these mountain towns embrace higher density, it's going to go, you know, in certain areas uh, or across town, you know, whether that's just, they call upzoning, which is like in all the areas that you used to only be able to have one house. Now you can have two or in places that you could have, um, you know, uh, 
a, a duplex. Now you can have a, a fourplex or something like that. Um, but you know, the, those, those policies will make a difference. And I think, you know, I was listening to there, there's been one, one like podcast that's actually talked about mountain town towns and what, what to do where they actually talk about this issue, which is the zoning issue is one that blister did a couple of years ago. Um, and I think the only problem that the, the guy that was advocating for a lot of what I'm advocating today, the only problem with his presentation is he's a developer. And so <laughs> he lives in Truckee, you know, and, and he's saying a lot of the right things and he is right, but he's saying these things like, like, I, I feel like a lot of people listening could have written him off of like, oh, yeah, he's a developer. Or like, oh, he doesn't, right. you know, of course he's going to say these things. Or like, where's his data? He's saying all this shit. And I guess I'm here today telling you that as a longtime land use lawyer who got really interested in this issue because I sat in zoning, like zoning board of appeals, um, hearings. I sat in planning board hearings. I've been in this process. I've been in the weeds of it for almost my entire career. And I've seen it firsthand and how easy it is to shoot down new housing projects in this country. Um, and now I teach this stuff and work with land use regulation as my job. And, you know, it's not just that experience, but it's also the fact that like, I've actually done the research, like there is a lot of peer reviewed studies on this precise issue that back up what that developer was saying, which is we need to ease our zoning restrictions. We need to ease things like, like parking requirements. We need to ease things like, like building height minimum or maximums that are like super low um, and allow people to actually build stuff that's livable and allow people to build something that's not just a single goddamn family home. Um, and we're actually going to do a lot. So for example, I just want to use one example because it, it is, I, I think, easy to hear things like let's, let's reduce land use regulation and just let the developers do what we want. Like nobody likes developers. Deve people like, like developers about the same amount as they like lawyers, um, which I have like, <laughs> uh, a very personal experience with. So, um, so here's a quote. So th this is by, um, there's an article written by uh, Jen Schutz and Lance Freeman. Um, Lance Freeman's professor at Columbia, um, teaches planning there. Jenny Schutz is probably like one of the most widely renowned um, experts in planning and economics and housing costs and prices. And she works, she's a fellow at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard. So like these are not, these are not developers. These are these are like very liberal, um, you know, academic PhDs who do studies combining economics and land regulation, looking at the effects. And they did one study that looked at different methods of trying to create more affordable, affordable housing in this country, like what works, because there's a lot of ideas are out there. And so they did this whole thing, looking at all these different things and like, outlawing Airbnb is like doing what's called inclusionary zoning, which we don't need to get into, but there's all these things that towns actually implement to try to solve the affordability problem. But they went in, they, they studied them and they're like, okay, so what actually worked of all these methods? Yeah. Here's, 
here's their quote. Um, here's their basically their conclusion. Restricting uh, restrictive and complex land use regulations have been shown to decrease the amount of new housing, particularly multifamily apartments, and increase housing costs. Local governments should should increase density allowed under zoning access jurisdictions, um, making it possible to produce smaller, lower cost housing units. That's their number one recommendation. And not only did they just look at like what worked, but they actually specifically identified, they looked at only those markets, housing markets, that have seen extreme rising costs, where there's extremely high demand and in wealthy places. So they looked at some of the more wealthy mm. places. So they they looked at towns where demand is high, prices are increasing, and there's a lot of wealth. And their number one recommendation, people that do this stuff for a living, is it's time to relook at our land use regulation and reduce the 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 land use regulation burdens on creating more housing. And and they get right into it and they basically say we need to end single family zoning. Like straight up, we need to end it, mm. and we need to end it now. Because, yeah, you know, if you will, will use a, a prime example, um, the area in between Mount Crested Butte and Crested Butte, um, the zoning that's applied to that area requires you to have four acres to buy to to build a single home. So if you want to put one residential unit, crazy. you need four acres of land. And so if you're a developer and you and that the land use costs are really sky high. So you're already spending, you know, say you're a developer, you're gonna spend, let's say it's five hundred thousand dollars, which I think is really low in Crested Butte for a four acre parcel <laughs> yeah. that's in between Crested Butte and Mount Crested Butte. <clears throat> but you can afford to buy a five hundred acre parcel. What are you gonna build on that parcel? You're gonna build a two hundred fifty thousand dollar like 1200 square foot single family home that somebody can afford. No, you're going to build a mansion. And that's exactly right. what gets built. <laughs> and so that's just a that's just a quick example of how this actually works on the ground. Because those are the choices we're we're being fit. when you only allow a single family house to be built on 4 acres what you're going to get is a mansion every time. No one is ever going to be a, no one is ever going to build housing that's affordable to the average um, mountain town worker, let alone ninety uh, percent of Americans or ninety nine percent of yeah Americans. single family yeah single family too at that size like that's a and here's that's an important distinction I think exactly and here's the other thing that drives me nuts you know people are like well you know we don't want to upzone because we're worried that like the single family home could be like torn down and somebody's going to put a you know triplex or whatever it's like. These old, a lot of these old single family homes, they're being torn down anyways, but they're being torn down right. and replaced with mansions is what's happening. And so you already see it anyways, but when you put a mansion in place of a single house, you're not solving a housing crisis. You're exacerbating it. Right. Um, because the only type right. of people that can manage to live there are really wealthy people. Um, but to me, if, if you're going to have a teardown, and you're going to tear down an old single family home that's been there forever, which I'm all about historical preservation. I think it's important, but for, but for those buildings and houses that aren't like, you know, historical in nature, they're just, you know, a house that's been there since 1960 or whatever, like 
and you're going to tear it down, I don't want to see a mansion put there. Or I don't want to see some contemporary, like, cute, like, three-story, three you know, um, modernist, single-family vacation home. I want to see some housing for people. I want to see multiple units. But yeah. you can't do that in Crested Butte. You can put, you can, how did that you can start? tear down a house in Crested Butte. I'll get to that in a second. You can tear down a house and you can put in its place a 3,000 square foot single family home by right. You don't need like lots of permits to do it other than like your normal building permits. You don't need to jump through these hoops. The zoning permits you to have that house there. Put a 3,000 square foot like huge house there. But if you want to tear down that house and put in, a 3,000 square foot building with three 1,000 square foot um, condos or, uh, you know, a, or three 1,000 uh, square foot smaller houses on that one lot, you can't do it. You can't do it. That The building is the same size, folks. The old building still got torn down, but you can't do, you can't build the housing that will actually be affordable to people. And that is, that's really what is happening in these mountain towns. And that is what is driving up the cost. And that's what mountain towns are seeing. Yeah. How, <clears throat> how did this happen? Like, why, why did that exist in the first place that people are still, because it has to go in at some point for people to even be upholding this at, you know, in 2023, when there is a housing crisis, right? What was the original reasoning for something like this happening, right? Is it to keep places like Crested, Crested Butte pretty? Like, I, I don't necessarily understand why shit like this exists. Like, so, four acres to me is yeah. insane. Yeah. Like, that's, I mean, if you live on four acres, awesome. But, like, that is not the norm, you know? Especially, like, we're in New England. Like, I have, like, I don't know fucking a tenth of an acre or something like that and it's perfectly fine you know what i mean like i don't understand the need for four acres as a requirement in that area yeah it's 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 not needed um but um we, we could di digress into some of the origins of this stuff a little bit um which i won't spend a ton of time on i think that um basically a lot of these types of zoning policies restrictions um, came about at a time, um, or I should say have their roots in a really, really, really ugly, uh, aspect of American history, which is our racist housing policy that we've had here. And so a lot of the things about single family housing were enacted, um, after the fair housing act was passed in the late 1960s. That's when you really saw single family housing, like start to proliferate. And basically, the long story short, there's an entire book about this. It's called The Color of Law, and it's all about, by Richard Rothstein, it's all about the nation's housing policies and how racist they were. Um, and then, you know, what's happened since then. So basically, it started off with you had places that were zoned for whites only. Like, if you were, if you were a person of color... Uh, if you're a black family, you couldn't buy a house in these areas. And then eventually after World War II, um, some of those things were struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, but, but, you know, what ended up happening was, was people who had already gotten theirs, let's say, 
um, people in white neighborhoods started using different techniques to make sure once the, once the courts and once the Fair Housing Act came out and said you can't discriminate in housing based on based on race, people found other interesting ways to do this same damn, same damn thing. Um, so there's private mm-hmm. restrictive covenants, which are essentially like zoning by contract, like a developer comes in, develops like hundreds of houses, and then has all these restrictions on who can buy and what kind of house can go in there that are specifically designed to price out people uh, like minorities. Because at that point, by the 1970s, once the Fair Housing Act was was enacted, you know, whites owned the housing in this country and, and minorities didn't. I mean, dis- they, they own some, but it's disproportional. So they made it hard to people in white neighborhoods. And there's a lot of research. There's a ton of research on this. It's not just Richard Rothstein's book. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, or I should say acquaintances, uh, who teaches law down at Denver um, School of Law, Sturm, um, she focuses on this issue and, and she really looks at what are the what are these like seemingly benign things like architectural design requirements and all that kind of stuff that were put into these zoning regulations that were intended to keep minorities out. Um, and so what people found was it was really easy once once you've already got your like white suburban neighborhood that blacks weren't allowed to even be in for for decades up until like the 60s. You couldn't, you know, you had to be white to live there. A lot of these have racist restriction covenants right in them. Is that people realize in those places, well, if we can't say in the restrictive covenants or in zoning, this is a whites only neighborhood. Um, what we're going to do is say, um, what you can have here is only single family zoning. And because that's kind of unaffordable. So they've already built up the whole area. So there's no room to build anything more unless you increase density. And what they did was they said single family zoning, which locked in the housing that was there. That was intended to and had the desired effect of driving up prices in those communities. Um, so yeah, uh, the other things they did, they, they included wording like, um, you know, housing needs to be consistent with the, quote, character of the town. This was, so that's what I was just going to ask you about. This was used a ton in, in places where, you know, like some of my, a lot of academics have poured through the meeting minutes of, you know, these planning boards or private developers implementing these things and they're designed to try to keep out the type of housing that would be affordable to people that aren't the white single family living in a single family house in these neighborhoods and so and character is cited all the time to oppose things like affordable housing i mean it's one of the number one terms used to um used to push back against affordable house this doesn't fit into the character of the town this isn't who we are um, and so those, those are being done to push zoning policies that ban duplexes that ban, you know, multiple small, smaller houses on a single lot that, that ban large apartment buildings. It's used all the time. And it's so bad, you know, th- that, that term character 
as used in zoning ordinances is just dripping with really, really ugly racist history, so bad that there are state legislatures around this country who are coming to terms, I think, like becoming a little more enlightened about the history of that term being used and are specifically right. passing legislation that bans towns from using the word character in any housing planning um, regulations. So Vermont just did that. Um, originally, it was in uh, a, a bill here in Maine, LD 2003, I think it was, which because of this history we're talking about, because of the racist history of single family zoning and character, it did two things. It tried to ban single family zoning in the state of Maine. And it tried to make it illegal for towns to consider, quote, character when looking at zoning policies. So these are, I think it's part of like sort of this reckoning in our country that at least some people seem to be recognizing about, um, you know, some of our, his, the, the uglier parts of our history and are, and are trying to do something about it. Um, they're getting only so far, but there have been a number of states that have actually banned municipalities from using the term character in their housing policy and they're in effect today and municipalities have had to scramble to strike that word and to take it out of all of these laws um but yeah. you know what's really sad is you still see that term thrown around a lot in mountain towns it's it was used to to um by some people to advocate against an affordable housing project that was proposed for crested butte um just a couple of years ago, popped up again, you know, this doesn't fit into the character of the town. Like we, um, so, and even, even though I think Crescent Butte came out with a new sort of general comprehensive plan for the town that has a lot of like amazing, like goals and objectives for housing, like making it more affordable. Um, I think it's TBD on that new, that new document just was passed a couple months ago because they haven't actually amended any of their zoning to be consistent with these goals of affordability because right now there's the zoning doesn't allow them to reach any of the goals that they've put into this community compass plan. Um, but right. even in this, what I consider a pretty progressive document in terms of like, we want a place that people can afford to live um, and things like that. You still right. find some of these terms that are used to strike down increased density um, so one example um, that I have from, from the community compass and one of the objectives of the town is to quote, accommodate growth in a way that maintains the towns and the valleys rural feel. And then that's one quote. So how are you supposed to increase density if one of, one of your goals is to maintain the town's rural feel? They would say, they would say, and they do say in the Community Compass, what we want to do is we want to try to focus any new development that does happen in places where there's already development. They call it, in, right. it's called infill. It's like, it's like little open spaces between existing buildings. We can fill that in kind of. Um, but but here's, here's where we find that really ugly word character again. Um, they want to preserve the rural field by quote, this is a direct quote from their, the new planning document. Pursue infill development and increased density opportunities in the town to increase workforce housing, childcare, and local essential good and service options, which are compatible with our character. So they throw in that term again. What is like, so like? What does that mean? Exactly. Like for people, 
it, like it, it just doesn't mean anything. It you know is. what I mean? It's just what somebody looks at and it's like, oh, this is what Crested Butte is supposed to feel like. Like, I can see the douchebag on the side of the street, like, saying this, waving his arms in the air. Like, it, it's supposed to be this way, you know? And you're just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like, this is not a thing. Yeah. There's not a standard for what the yeah. culture of a town should be. And I th- I th- Nobody's saying we're going to turn it to a dump. You know what yes. I mean? Like, I, it just turns into this thing that you're like... <laughs> You're saying something that is not what we're saying at all. Like that that's basically what this ends up being. I think a hundred percent. I think it's a it's a it's purposefully a an ambiguous term. And it is used be and, and the more ambiguous it is, the more it can be used to it's kinda like the wink wink nudge nudge, like, you know, Joe over here knows what I'm talking about. You know, and, and that's right. You know, this this term came from a bunch of freaking racists, like like that didn't want to get up right. in front of a town council and be like, blacks aren't allowed in our community. Um, <laughs> and so they use these ambiguous things because then like you know it's kind of like the wink wink nudge nudge. I am not saying that mountain towns that put this term in there are racist. I think that they're a little bit naive about its racist history, and I wish somebody would bring it up and and strike this bullshit. But I don't think that. The folks in these mountain towns are do, doing this because they're inherently racist. The way that that municipalities were when we started to see that term show up in land use regulation documents, you know, years ago. But right. But giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, what I do think is that it is inherently ambiguous, and it is kind of like like a lot of these documents talk about like we don't we can't really put a finger on it but we know this town is special and it has a very special feel to it it's like they say these things right in the document and i'm like what the fuck does that mean um but what it really means where where the rubber hits the road with that term character is when people try to put anything into a town that is not a single family house that's where character comes right. in and people cite it all the time like we can't have it like this like look at our town it's a, it's got this amazing rural feel that we're trying to preserve. How can we yeah. put in an apartment complex to, to house 220 seasonal workers here that's going to be five stories tall? Like, right. God forbid there's a five-story tall building that actually houses people who work in the town because that would be against the town character because right now the town character of Crested Butte, let's be honest, is this is a theme park for millionaires. If you didn't already yeah. get your housing back in the 90s when when housing prices weren't crazy that that's what it is that's what it will be in the future unless they do something about their housing regulations and embrace some density and i know that is really hard because again this goes back to the beginning where i talked about like psychology people don't like change and if i bought a house in Crested Butte in the 1990s a huge part of me would be like I bought this house in this town because I like what it looks like. It's beautiful. I like it the way that it is. And I don't I don't want to see like a five-story. Like if I want to see a five-story apartment building for local housing, for, for local workers, I would have moved to Keystone. But Keystone sucks. I moved to Crested Butte. You know, like I, I understand. <laughs> I understand that. But like at some point, the people that actually – got in when housing was affordable in Crested Butte and have this like nostalgic rosy view of what it is. Um, like 
once once they move on and sell, I mean, the people that can't afford to move into Crested Butte today are in the top 1%, if not the top 0.5% of income worker income uh, Americans in this country. Like, that's just a fact. Nobody can afford to actually buy housing there. Like, and, and so, yeah, I think they're going to have to look at themselves in the eye and say, like, when, when we're talking about character, like, uh, what are we talking about? Like, this this mountain theme yeah. park for, for rich people. Well, I think it's, it'll hit them in the face as soon as they start going to the grocery store and there's no one working there. As soon as they start going to the ski resort and there's no one working there. Like, and that, that'll be like... A hundred percent. Right. It's it's starting to happen where people are showing up to the rental shop and it's taking them an hour to get their shit. And you're like, they're still not totally able to see the problem because they'll be like, why aren't there more people working? Right. They only get to that problem. They don't. I don't think people have clicked over to problem number two, which is like there's not enough people to work like you can tell people that all day long. It's not like it's like public knowledge that there's not I can tell you firsthand there's no one to work like I've tried everything. Yeah tried raising what we pay like there there's nothing that i can do to get more people in without there being a place to live for them and i think that's that's a huge part of the problem right it's funny you sent me that vice documentary about crested butte crested butte and the pizza shop owner kind of talking about oh yeah like we'd like to open every single day in every location we can't because we don't have enough people to work. Why don't we have enough people to work? Well, there's restrictions on the housing, short-term rentals, blah, 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 blah. And then they go and they ask her, do you own any short-term rentals? And she's like, yeah. Like, it, it's just, it, it, like, that's a good example of, like, like, you're hearing it from the horse's mouth. Like, you can't open every single day. You can't have a functioning town economy without people to actually work in that economy. 100%. A hundred percent. And I do think that is why a lot of these mountain towns, like it, it's one thing to hear some ski bum be like, I can't find a place to live, man. And like, like town, yeah, towns right. aren't going to like, and there's a hundred places to live. Yeah, yeah. But like, but, but when businesses, when the people that own local businesses in a town show up to a town meeting and start to, to, to complain because they can't find workers, then the town council starts paying attention. Then the rest of the town starts paying right. attention. And the people that already live there and already have got their piece of the pie suddenly are like, wait a second, this isn't just a problem for people trying to move here to have what I got in the first place. This is a problem for me too. And so they yeah. actually show up and and are now like, you know, kind of pushing for some of these changes. But again, I do think that like in mountain towns are not unique in this. There's like a lot of lip service being paid um like everybody knows that there's a housing crisis in these mountain towns and everybody is talking about like wanting more affordable housing but what you end up seeing is you hear these terms and you get it in these planning documents about affordable housing like Crested Butte just just put through with all these like lofty goals but where the rubber hits the road is not like the lofty goals on a piece of paper it's like how are you going to change the laws to affect what you're talking about and that's yeah. that's where that's where towns just really struggle and are not able to do it um and you know i think in crested view for example on the, the blister podcast i was talking about they had the town planner in there talking talking about housing and 
one of his quotes in there, you know, this kind of highlights to me, like one of the issues. And I think he's a really smart guy and really cares about, um, about housing uh, in Crested Butte and wants to see more affordable housing. But he has, but he has this quote in there that I just started thinking about. And it was like, he said, quote, I'm convinced that we cannot build our way out of this problem because we have an amenity that many, many people want. And the demand to live here, recreate here, far exceeds our supply to accommodate it. And I guess I would have, for, for people that hold that views, I would have two responses. Number one, that's actually a circular logic. What he says in this quote is, we can't build our way out of this problem because, because our supply and demand is off. And so one way to it to address <laughs> supply and demand is increase the supply. But he's saying we can't increase the right. supply because there's too much demand. That is, that is what his logic is. It's, you know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. As lawyers, we call that circular logic. Um, and it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But second, you know, to the extent that he has a point about, about like, yes, there are a lot of people that want to live in Crested Butte. It's beautiful. It's stunning. The mountains, the recreation there are great. But to say, like, I'm convinced that we can't build our way out of this problem, I would ask him this question. Where is your data? Because there is, I have a pile of studies this big that begs to differ. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think what he's getting at is like, it, it feels like that to, to people in the town. Like it feels like we can't build our way out of this problem. And I do think that once you've hit a point that Crested Butte is at with housing prices, like you're not going to bring it back down to where it was in the nineties for those mountain communities that haven't seen that exponential growth in, in market prices, like there is still hope for them. Um, if they change their, right. their regs, I think that you increase housing in a mountain town by, by reducing some of these regulatory burdens and costs that we've been talking about, you're going to see, you're going to see housing prices plateau, but it is a long-term effort. Um, it's not going to happen right away. In fact, the empirical evidence shows that towns that have reduced the regulate regulatory burden, um, on their own usually see a short spike in the prices and demand for housing because you know the the demand is the supply is so in the in the hole when you start building more housing like there's so many people that wanted it there's like kind of a mad rush but that it subsides after a few years and then the housing goes down um there's only a couple places um around the english-speaking world who have who have done this who have like whole, like across every zone in town, reduce the regulatory burden on building new houses. And the empirical evidence coming out of that, uh, that's the city of Auckland, um, is that they've reduced house, their their housing costs were going through the roof. And in a couple of years, they completely- Of course it's fucking New Zealand. Because yeah, they can get shit done. Uh, <laughs> they completely stabilized their housing costs and started to drive down costs and increase the housing stock of of what are called like, um, people call it the missing middle. It's like, it's like not affordable housing and it's not mansions. It's something in the middle that people can actually afford to buy and build equity in um, as like a first or second, mm. their, their first home, you know? Those are the, 
So it's not like affordable housing rentals in the big apartment building. It's not the mansions. It's like all the stuff in the middle. And and that happened and it, and it worked. Um, but again, you know, to, to people that harbor the same sentiment as the town planner in Crestwood Butte, at least in that quote, kind of like telling themselves that, I, I would ask them, where's your data? Because there's a lot of data that, that says otherwise. That response by him to me sounds like someone who has given up, like who has just like kind of washed their hand, like it's too hard. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's what that response kind of sounds like to me because it doesn't make sense. He's just saying it so that there's a reason to get whoever's asking him off his back for the moment, right? Like that's the answer that he's been telling people. Mostly people accept it. And then he doesn't have to fight back with people that are down his throat about building this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so my question, I guess, to you is, do you see these types of things getting fixed? Are we too late to fix a lot of this stuff? Because I mentioned to you on Monday, I, to me, I go and I try to work in a mountain town winter one, right? Like, I don't get a job. I don't find a place to live there, rather. It's impossible. I don't go back the next year wondering, okay, can I get a job here? You know, like, I I don't see that happening very often. I see a lot of the people going and saying, let me go do something else. Let me go work somewhere else. Let me try a different place. So I think you get a lot of this bouncing around that's going to happen because there isn't the availability over the past few years, the past, whatever, five years, decade, whatever. So I think that's a problem. But then we're talking about building these things that take a significant amount of time. Yeah. Like how is there, there's not an immediate fix to this problem, right? So like what what needs to start happening now in order for that to be like, in order for a positive change to happen as soon as possible? I think, I think for towns where housing is already like, exponentially too expensive. I think of like places like the Roaring Fork Valley or Jackson Hole, or now we're seeing it in Crescent yeah. Like, I think that, that there's a couple things. Like you can, you can immediately address, I think, affordability, affordable housing for, for seasonal workforce housing by creating the type of development that we were talking about with the apartments. And they're actually, there's a kind of a new proposal called Whetstone um down there right now um that's supposed to create about 200 affordable units um there's no actual plans or anything like like they haven't even found a developer to do it but the town is the town and and the county is is pushing for it um they want to see this parcel developed for for housing so i think you know those are steps that can happen immediately to create housing for seasonal workers to address some of the things like worker shortages and stuff like that. Like I lived in housing like that. I lived in Tenderfoot in in Keystone, which was essentially like a huge dorm of suites when I was working at a basin back in like the mid two thousands. You know, it's not the best, but for seasonal workers, it's freaking great. Like seasonal workers that were my age, like I wouldn't want to live there now seasonally, but like, yeah, it works. It does work. It it will provide you a lot of those seasonal workers. And those can be done relatively quickly. I do think where those projects get bogged down brings us back to the housing regulations because everybody requires crap like, well, 
you know, we need to make, you need to do a parking study and you need to do a new traffic study around this thing. And we need mm. to, we'd like to see you hide these buildings with shrubs. So like what kind of trees are you going to bring in so that people driving up the road don't have to see an apartment, they see trees instead. You know, what you get into the nitty gritty of the requirements, it's called site plan review for these big projects. And that's where shit gets ugly because you, these zoning ordinance will literally have like a hundred pages of requirements all the way from the type of freaking shrubs you can plant on these properties to like the color of the door to the pitch of the roof. And it just gets bogged down in these complexities, um, that are absolutely out of control. Um, you know, I'll give you like a quick example, like down in, in CB South, Crestbeat South, which is actually just all part of a big development. They don't have zoning. They have um, restrictive covenants that the developers put in there. All you can really put in down there is a single family home in that development. So like this whole, it's like kind of a quasi town, south of town. Um, but the only thing you can build there is a single family home. There's a couple lots that are available for commercial, but if you want to buy a single family home, there's 60 pages of design requirements for the home that cover everything from parking to minimum lot size to open space. Even after you've put in your driveway, your parking garage, your house, there's a minimum amount of space that has to be quote left open, which is 60% of a lot. So there's like, there's all these requirements and you know, that's just for single family housing. So think about, right. think about like these towns will have literally like hundreds of pages of requirements for a project. Like you're going to see down in Whetstone, um, South of, of Crested Butte, which is the affordable housing project. And, and that's where like people always say good things about projects like that until the first, like artist rendition of what it's going to look like comes out or the first site plan review when they, right. to, when the developer submits the application and then people come out of the woodwork and fight and fight and it drags the process out forever. And so again, that all comes back to like, if you want to see it happen more quickly, you've got to reduce some of these like asinine regulatory burdens. Um, because I'm, yeah. I'm a regulator, like this is what I do for a living. Um, mostly environmental regulation, but like, I, I believe in the power of regulations when they're designed to do the right thing. But I think right now these, these regulations are designed in a way that doesn't create, you know, good development. It stops development and that's how people mm. use them. Yeah. Dude, yeah, this is all so, yeah. What What can we end on for people that will maybe help them feel a little more optimistic about this situation yeah. or make them feel like there's actually like a possibility for change, like a, kind of actionable items for people to start considering if they live in a mountain town. Yeah if they constantly recreate in a mountain town, like things to kind of be aware of, right? I think education is the first step for all of this stuff. 100%. So I hope that people kind of got a good sense, at least a baseline sense of what we're talking about here and not 
and that it's not just all Airbnb problems because like that's the number one thing you hear every single time. It's like all these short term rentals, oh they're the worst, oh whatever. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about yeah. actionable steps that people can take. You know, there's some low hanging fruit. Crested Butte is taking some good actionable <laughs> steps. Like number one is to uh, not only to permit but to encourage the construction of what's called accessory dwelling units which that's, you're going to hear that term when you go, or ADU, when you go to town meetings. But what that really is, is like, that's that's the in-law apartment. That's what that describes. It's the apartment right. that people put over a garage and have somebody rent it. Like my wife, when she was living out in Tahoe, she lived in, in an apartment over a rich person's garage. Those types of, those types of, that type of housing, um, you know, by the way, in Boulder, I lived in a basement ADU until I was like 39, like, like up until last year, <laughs> until I could finally at age 40, buy my first home, even though I'm a lawyer, I was living in a single bedroom basement apartment. Like how pathetic is that? Um, but that's a story of like millennials, you know, I borrowed a shit ton of money to go to law school and then realized that like, being a lawyer actually doesn't pay like as well as I thought it did. And like, turns out it sucks to have like, $200,000 of student loans you're supposed to pay back in 10 years. But <laughs> like, but those ADUs can house workforce force. It creates dispersed workforce around workforce housing throughout the town. There's just, it creates more rental opportunities. And I think that's a good first step. Another step um, is to push for uh, policies that allow things like if like if somebody wants to park a um, a tiny home on a driveway, so like say say you say you own a house in Crested Butte, and I've got a tiny home, and it's like that's the only affordable place I can live. Like a lot of mountain towns don't their zoning ordinance don't they don't allow me to park on your property. Like I can't park there because it would be considered a second dwelling unit, and those aren't allowed. So there, there, there are towns that now allow, like specifically allow it. These are some of like the lower hanging fruit because they're less controversial. So those are some policies I think people can push for. But I think overall, people need to start standing up and pushing for things like, why on earth are we only allowing mansions to be built between Crested Butte and Mount Crested Butte on four acres of land? Like, what purpose does that actually serve? If it's preservation of open space, make the make the stuff open space. Don't don't pretend like you're going to allow some housing there when the housing that is is now like every four acres. So you just have dispersed single family ho- housing throughout four instead of like yeah. instead of like focusing all of your housing in one little area and then letting the rest of the space be open. So. I think, you know, planners know how to do the town planners know how to do this. Um, but they need to hear from your citizens that that's what the citizens are demanding that they do. Um, because otherwise, they're going to do the same shit they've always done, which is, you know, zone all of Crested Butte for single family zoning. Like, like one of the statistics is um, from this is a, a little bit dated, but I think it's 2010. This came out, uh, but I couldn't find anything newer. 94% of people in Crestview live in a single family home. So that's like pretty, pretty insane. Like 
you can't you can't solve a housing crisis when your zoning ordinance creates a situation where only six percent of people live in a multi-family housing situation that's like so crazy an apartment with more than one dwelling unit like that's insane and so insane. like it's like yeah those regulations work the way that they're intended and nobody can afford to live there because there's no housing um so yeah. i think i think people just need to start pushing i think the more people that can bring awareness to some of these town meetings about some of the you know things like like let's get rid of this term character in our land use planning documents yeah. like we need to get rid of it and we need to get rid of it now you know um even even if it's not being used for like a racist purpose today bringing it's being used to stop a lot of housing and so bringing awareness of of where that term came from and it's and it's racist history makes people not want any to to not want to have anything to do with it and get rid of it um right. but i think you know one thing that gives me a lot of, of hope is I think this this planning document that Crested Butte, I mean, I know I nitpicked a couple parts of it, but overall it's a good planning document and it creates a lot of good housing objectives. And so I think right. the townspeople have shown that that they're willing to take this seriously, at least as a concept. And I think that momentum mm. really needs to be carried down. We need to demand the people that have helped create that community compass document now need to make sure that the town follows through and enacts the zoning that's required to actually um, achieve the goals stated in these governing documents. And I think that's, mm. it gets harder, but, but town planners know how to do this stuff. And so I think people need to just hold, hold their government accountable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've done, a great service to people that are listening, I hope, because you can't say anything unless you like you can't start to throw stones or start to like actually put this information out there unless you actually know what you're asking for. Right. Like everybody can say all this stuff, but they don't know what the actual problem is. So I think yeah. this hopefully will give people some insight. Yeah. So yeah. I thank you for that. Thank you for the time. I know you've spent Definitely. a lot of time on this and I actually would like we'll do a follow up on this, I think, because I think people will be really interested in this. And I, uh, I'm curious to see what people have to say. Yeah, um, me too. I mean, I if know people want, I know some of my opinions on this stuff are going to be super controversial. You know, people are going to feel attacked in these towns. And that's like, not my goal to tell people that they're racist, because I don't think that that is why we have these policies in these mountain towns. I think that they adopted what was normal in America that had a really ugly history. Um, but I, I do think, you know, and I, th I, I, I sympathize with people in these mountain towns. Like it would be great if they could stay Crested Butte in 1990 and like housing was affordable. It had this beautiful feel. There was easy access to the mountain. Like it was a utopia most likely. I didn't live there, but it sounds like everybody that talks about it sounds like it was a utopia. And times have changed and that's not the reality anymore. And I think it's really, really hard to deal with that. You see all these things changing around you, a lot of things that you don't like, and that feel out of control. It's like, why are all these like millionaire yeah. Texans moving here? And it's like, I yeah. get that. And so I get why people focus on things like a vacancy tax, 
which was proposed in Crested Butte for a while, which, you know, I get it. Like that's an emotional reaction and it's a natural emotional reaction to combat what you feel like is like outsiders putting you under threat. Um, so I'm not unsympathetic, but I hope that, that, that because, you know, I've got strong opinions, I'm not scaring people away from actually kind of digging into this stuff and be willing to step back and, and say, well, maybe it's not like just the Texans. <laughs> yeah, for sure. If uh, we'll include some stuff in the show notes that you sent over here and kind of give people more access to some of this information, but where, if people want to follow up with you, where do they find you on the internet? How do they get in touch with you? I'm sure people have questions. So definitely. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd really welcome that. Um, including criticism. Um, I think it's the only way to <laughs> like, seriously, like, uh, but I agree. I, I with you, I oh, really yeah. appreciate feedback always like good or I bad. take feedback pretty well, actually. Um, so I do sometimes if it's warranted, like if there's yeah. like, if it's actual feedback, yes, right. It's, this is the internet. Like I exist right, very right. much on the internet and like half of it is half of it isn't like I, I've made a career out of picking on people who are picking on us for <laughs> no reason at all. But, um, yeah. I, I do really appreciate the criticism. So yeah, if so, people want to find you to give you that criticism. Yeah. Um, maybe in the show notes, you can, you can throw in my email, um yeah well and uh instagram just handle benjamin period m period leone at gmail.com but um you can also find me on linkedin i've actually posted a little bit about housing stuff on linkedin because uh, i'm a nerd um i actually started, <laughs> I was just I started gonna make using fun linkedin of <laughs> lately like i don't know what happened to me i became a dad i went on LinkedIn. i kind of did too dude i've been using it a bit lately too it's kind of i don't know what depressing. happened but um but but yeah instagram yeah. <laughs> Instagram's a bigger one. I've actually done some stuff on, on the gram and, and I will like, like a lot of people follow me cause I used to do a ski web series called working for the weekend through ski the East or, or was mm-hmm. on like some of the old, like meathead ski films. Um, but, but now because you know, my life is equal parts skiing and, and, and other things. Um, I tend to, I tend to like post some about some of these, hot button issues on the gram too so you can find me at that skiing lawyer guy um, on the gram awesome ben thank you so much for the time sweet thanks adam appreciate the questions